Introduce yourselves. Your name? Claire. Okay, this is Claire. Quinn. Quinn. Nick. Nick. This thing is not on, is it? Now it is. Let's go again. Claire. Quinn. Nick. And Emma. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are low of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anybody lay, on a, lay a lamp and turn it on a basket. But on a lampstand, it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men and shut away there shall see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes or Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Is that awesome? (laughs) Guys, thank you so much. This is God's word. You can be seated. Okay, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 this morning. Um, What we call the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a tall task today because we're going to look at the whole thing. Um, when Crossroads first started, I don't know if some of you remember this, but we spent the whole first year of our existence studying this sermon. And so, now I'm going to do it one Sunday. And I think both paces are good because sometimes you can't see the forest from the trees and that's what we're going to go for more today. Now here's the question I want to start out with is this, what is... The Sermon on the Mount. I'll say a few things about it. First of all, it is the most incredible sermon ever preached. It's not even close. But it's more than a sermon. Because I want to place this in its context, okay? In Matthew's first four chapters, he shows us how Jesus is reliving Israel's story of Exodus, wilderness, promised land. Exodus is what? This is the most important event in Israel's story. What is it? It's when God liberates them, rescues them, saves them, redeems them from slavery. 
The wilderness came next. What's that? 40 years, they're, they're in the wilderness because 40 is always in the Bible the number for preparation. They're being prepared for something. What are they being prepared for? Promised land. And between wilderness and promised land, they're crossing the Jordan. This is their baptism. This is how God is making the old and and bringing about the new. And he's bringing them then into promised land. What's promised land? It's the kingdom of heaven. It's God's people and God's place, enjoying God and priesting God to the nations around them. In fact, if you want to know the meaning of salvation and the meaning of redemption at the time of Jesus, it's far more than justification by faith alone. It's exodus. It's God rescuing a people from slavery. It's wilderness. God says, for I led you all these years in the desert to humble you and to test you so that you would know that you do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from my mouth. And it's promised land. It's God's people in God's place enjoying God and priesting that God into the world around them. And that, my friends, is the kingdom of heaven. And that's why Matthew wants us to understand Jesus within this framework. He says, out of Egypt, in chapter 1, I called my son because Jesus is the new exodus. He is the ultimate exodus. He's the final exodus. And it's why Jesus then spends 40 days in the wilderness because there he is going to become everything that God's people got to experience in that wilderness. He, got, he is to become ultimate manna, ultimate living water the ultimate tabernacling presence of God. And his desert is to prepare him for the ultimate purpose of God, which is to lead his people across the Jordan into the ultimate promised land, because Jesus is the ultimate Eden. And listen, he not only came to this world to bring his people back to Eden, but to make the whole world Eden. And see, it's within this context that we need to understand the Sermon on the Mount because this is more than just another sermon by Jesus. You need to keep thinking Exodus. That's why, look at verse 1. It begins with Jesus going up the mountain. Now, why this detail? Who else went up a mountain to receive God's law, God's Torah? Moses, so that he could give it to who? The 12 tribes, God's people. Jesus is going up the mountain to give Torah. Notice in the first verse who this is for. Yeah, it's not the crowd, it's for the 12, the disciples. And just to show you that I'm not in left field here, immediately immediately following this sermon, I think in the second to the last verse of chapter 7, you read these words. When Jesus had finished these words. This will be the first of five times that this phrase is going to be used in Matthew's gospel. And each time it's used, it's at the conclusion of a large chunk of Jesus' teaching. For instance, in 7 verse 28, it's at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 11 verse 1, it concludes Jesus' in-depth instruction to his disciples. In chapter 13, verse 53, it concludes a section of Jesus' parables. In chapter 19, verse 1, it concludes another 
lengthy section of Jesus' teaching in parables. And then in chapter 26, verse 1, um, it concludes two chapters chock full of Jesus' teaching. See, what Matthew's doing is he's breaking Jesus' teaching down into five sections. Hmm, why five? When Moses came down the mountain, what did he have in his hands? Ten Commandments. Torah. What we call the five books of Moses. Which were God's instructions on how God's people were to be holy as he is holy. And see, Matthew wants us to see Jesus as the new Moses who brings us God's Torah. So that we can be perfect. As our Heavenly Father is perfect. Now listen. Did I just waste your time? Why does this matter? I'll tell you why it matters. Because in Deuteronomy 18, verse 16, God promises that one day a prophet like Moses would come. And when this prophet comes, he will make sense of God's Torah. He will explain it. And God says, you must Listen to him. Listen, in Hebrew is the word shema. You must shema him. In fact, there's that one time in Jesus' life and ministry when God literally thunders this down from heaven when he says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So let's listen to him this morning. Now, I love how Brandon outlined this sermon In fact, I I looked at it, I thought to myself, I can't improve on that. I can only build on it. Because first, what Brandon showed us is that this sermon is first and foremost about what? The kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is not just God saving a few souls from the carnage of this world, but the kingdom of heaven is God unleashing new creation into his broken creation, new creation, into broken, sinful people, leading to our salvation. So here's the outline for today. I rarely do this, but I'm going to give give you an outline just because I'm covering so much. Number one, we're going to look at the people of the kingdom. Secondly, the mission of the kingdom. Third, the yoke of the kingdom. And fourthly, the king of this kingdom. So let's start with the people of the kingdom. Who are they? Who are the people of Jesus' kingdom? First of all, they're disciples. They're followers of Jesus. Look at verses 1 and 2. Jesus isn't talking to the crowds. He sits down and he teaches his disciples. And this whole sermon begins with what we call the Beatitudes. And I don't know if Brandon did this, but notice that the first and last beatitude end with the promise of the kingdom. This is what's called an inclusio, meaning these beatitudes are not different groups of people, but they describe one kind of person, the kind of person who gets the kingdom. The kind of person who belongs to God. And look at the kind of person this is. This person is poor. This person is meek. This person is mournful. This person is hungry and thirsty. This person is full of mercy. This is a person who makes peace. This is a person who is hurt by the world. And Jesus said, it's this person who's blessed. 
It's this person who's going to be filled. It's this person who's going to be comforted. It's this person who's going to be called a son of God. It's this person who will see God. It's this kind of person who belongs to the kingdom of heaven. And because of how the Beatitudes begin, each one with this word blessed, don't just think happy, even though happy, I think, is what they are. But let this word blessed bring you back to Abraham. Because Abraham is the first to be promised the kingdom. When God says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham. I'm going to bless your family. I'm going to bless the nation that will come from you. And through you, Abraham, and your people, I'm going to bless all the families and the nations of the earth. Here's a question. According to Jesus, who gets the kingdom? Who are the true sons of Abraham? I mean, feel the shocker of this. It's the poor. It's the meek. It's those who cry. It's the hungry, it's the pure in heart, it's the merciful, it's the small, it's the least. It's what our world might call the losers, the nobodies. And this has always been God's way. His heart is so drawn to the least, to the small, because his kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. The humble will be exalted. The exalted will be humbled. The poor will be rich. The rich will be made poor. And notice, because just like with Abraham, not only is Abraham blessed, but it's through Abraham, and it's through this kind of person that the Beatitudes describes that God is going to bless the world. In other words, (laughs) he's going to unleash his kingdom, not through the strong, not through the mighty, not through the somebodies of the world. But through what our world would call the nobodies, the least, the small. And see, every kingdom in our world, big or small, it's always about the strong and the mighty. That's what we send out to make our kingdom great. But Jesus, he sends out the poor, the small, the least. And that's how Jesus is unleashing his kingdom. I don't know about you, but that moves me. And here's the question I have to ask, and I want you to ask it about yourself right now, is this. Do you belong to the kingdom of heaven? Do these beatitudes describe the kind of person you are? Does it describe your life? Do these beatitudes describe this church? Because Jesus says, for such is the kingdom of heaven, and it's through such as these that my kingdom is unleashed. Now, what's the mission of the kingdom? 
Well, Jesus flushes this out in verses 14 to 16. He says, you're the salt of the earth. He says, you're the light of the world. He says, you're a city set on a hill. He's using these word pictures. Um, Salt in that world was seen as a preservative. It kept things, especially things like meat, from decaying. So Jesus is saying, you know what your mission is in the world? It's to keep the world from decay. In fact, one of the primary uses of salt in the ancient world is what they would do is, uh, the way that they would cook with all their pots and their pans, it would always be done with a fire. And, and what they would burn was not wood because wood was just such a precious resource. So does anybody know what they burned? Manure. Dung. And what they found out that is when you took salt and mixed it in the manure, in the dung, it caused the fire to burn hotter and longer. In fact, Jesus picks up on this. In in Luke chapter 14, he said, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's just thrown out. Do you see the picture here? As salt, we are to mix with what? Manure. In other words, where our world is crappy and stinky and putrid, that's where we are. We we move towards that. We're attracted to that. We're drawn to that. We move into that. Why? Because that's God. He's a God that just, he moves in. Know this about God. Our God is a missionary God. He, from the beginning, is on a mission to save and redeem the world he loves. And if we belong to him, we're going to join with him in this, and we're going to be like him. God moves in. God incarnates himself in the filthiest, most vile places. And so therefore, as light, we don't run from darkness, but we move into it. And we're a city. We are a city set on a hill, which means we don't do this as just a bunch of individuals, but we do this as a collective community. And so I ask, how are we doing? How are you doing? Have you joined God on his mission? Do you run from the smelly, stenchy places of our world? Or do you gravitate towards it? Are your hands dirty? Are your feet dirty? Now the rest of this sermon is Jesus' yoke. It's the yoke of Jesus' kingdom. Now what do I mean by yoke? 
Let me just give you a little context here. In Jesus' day, rabbis were beginning to emerge throughout Israel. It's a rabbi. Well, today a rabbi is much like an ordained minister or a reverend, but in those days a rabbi was simply one who devoted their whole life to Torah. They devoted themselves to knowing it so they could live it, so they could pray it, so they could teach it, so they could die it. More than that, their mission was to push this Torah learning and this Torah living into a group of young men called Talmudim, or disciples as we call them. And when you think disciple, most of us think student. And a student to us is someone who simply learns what the teacher knows. But a disciple, a Talmud, is more than that. His sole intent was not just to know what the rabbi knows, but, be, but to become all that the rabbi is. So these t- Talmud gave up everything. For a period of their life, two, three, four years, they spent every ma- waking moment with their rabbi, Their training didn't happen in an institution. Their training happened in life on life. The classroom was the real world. Now, every rabbi had their yoke. Their yoke was their interpretation of Torah. It was the way that they saw that Torah should get walked out. Because remember, to a Jew, it's not just what we do. Or no, but it's how we walk this thing out. It needs to get fleshed out in a person's life. Now I say all of this because Jesus is clearly stepping into this rabbi Talmudim paradigm. In fact, he's not just like, hey, maybe I should make some disciples. I want you to see this. This is the way Jesus is unleashing the kingdom of heaven. Twelve men. Twelve men are going to become like Jesus. And they're going to change the world. That's why I say, just give me twelve. And Rod, just be one of the twelve. God doesn't change the world through casual Christians. He changes the world through Talmudim, through disciples. He does. Now, read verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law, the Torah, or the prophets. That would be the whole Old Testament. He said, I've not... Come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. See, I think so many Christians are so badly mistaken on what to do with Torah in the Old Testament. I think most of us just think that, wow, that didn't work. (laughs) And we look at it, and it's just a bunch of laws to us, which are bad, they're broken, and thank goodness that they're now obsolete. 
And that Jesus just came to do away with all of that and to start something completely new. Really? Is that what Jesus says? Two times he says, I did not come to abolish the law. And then look at what he says in verses 18 and 19. He says, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, nor the least stroke of a pen, not a jot or a tittle, not a crossing of a T or a dotting of the I, will by any means disappear from the law, from Torah, until everything in it is accomplished. And then verse 19, therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others according will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Do you hear Jesus? It's not the law that is bad and broken. It's why the apostle Paul says that the law... Torah is holy, it's righteous, and good. In fact, do you know that Jesus wrote the law with his own pinky? In Exodus 31, verse 18, it says that Torah that Moses received was written by the very finger of God. And to my understanding, uh, the finger of God is the finger of the pre-incarnate Christ. Just like that glory cloud that walked... (laughs) had feet, I guess, and stood before them was more than just a cloud, but it was Jesus covered in smoke by day and fire by night. And when Moses and Aaron and the 70 elders went up the mountain to eat the covenant meal, and it says they saw God, they saw Jesus. And it's Jesus who wrote Torah. It's not the Torah that's bad or broken. It's we who are bad and broken. And I love this because Jews in Jesus' day, in fact, Jews to this day, believe that when Messiah comes, and this is how they put it, he will not only correctly interpret all the problematic verses of Scripture, he will also correctly interpret all the individual words of each verse. In fact, when Messiah comes, he will also correctly interpret all the individual letters of each word. In fact, when Messiah comes, he will even interpret all the white spaces between the letters and the words. That's so Jewish. And listen to Jesus. I have not come to abolish scripture. I have come to fulfill it. In other words, Jesus says, I have come to give it its fullest meaning. Every jot and every tittle. You know what? If Jesus wrote Torah with his pinky, what we have in the Sermon on the Mount is his commentary on it. It's his interpretation. This is Jesus telling us how we are to live Torah. This is his yoke. This is his interpretation of Torah. And so I say, Christian, know it. Like these kids up here. Memorize it. Hide it in your heart. Because if you want to know what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, it's right here. 
This is his yoke. You know, I don't have time to cover everything here, but let me give you a flavor of Jesus' yoke. You've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery. You've heard it was said, do not murder. But I say anyone who even says, you fool or raka, is guilty of murder in his heart. And he goes on, and he goes on. You've heard it was said, but I say to you. You've heard it was said, but I say to you. That's why I read this. In one sense, it inspires me. I mean, it's beautiful. Because I know in my heart, this is how I need to live. I know it. I know as a man, I can't just walk around and, 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 and think I've obeyed God if I, if I just don't commit adultery. I know that when I lust, when I'm in the YMCA and looking at another woman who's jogging, I know that's wrong. I know it's wrong when things come out of my mouth like, you fool. But that's murder. And I know this, that I, I, I want to I live in a neighborhood, in a family, in a church, in a community that does this. It'd be heaven on earth. That's Jesus' point. But at the same time, it inspires me. And I think Brandon said this last week. It horrifies me. I'm so far from it. I can't do it. And as a disciple of Jesus, you want my grade? I'll tell you my grade F. I fail. I flunk out. And then I read verse 20, where Jesus says, And your righteousness, by the way, should exceed that of of the Pharisees and the Torah teachers. And I'm telling you, when they heard this, it horrified them. Because the Pharisees and the Torah teachers devoted their whole life to perfecting Torah. I mean, they looked at their story, starting with Adam and Eve, and they concluded, Adam and Eve, they were exiled from the garden because of disobedience. And then they looked at their people, and they're like, they were exiled from the land because of disobedience. And they're like, never again. We're going to obey. And so to ensure this obedience, they put this fence around Torah. And I don't know if you remember when I stood on that speaker and drew the line and then went all the way back to that speaker. That's called a fence. That's like we're going to get so far away from the line that we're going to create a hundred rules that push us all the way back from here. Jesus will call this, in the text, the tradition of the elders. Today it's called rabbinic Judaism. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, You'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he caps it all off at the end of chapter 6. He says, be perfect. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Who's feeling good right now? 
I mean, who's thinking, yep, I can do this? Be careful if that's you. You're a Pharisee. Because that's what a Pharisee does. In all their righteousness, they look at Torah and they say, yep, I can do this. I can do this through my own effort. I can do this through my own striving. Yep, I can do it. And so they go through life just proving to themselves and proving to others that they can live perfectly obedient lives. And see, what this produced then was a life of of rule-keeping and right behavior. And their relationship to God became all about performance, all about externals. It bypassed the heart. It produced this outside-in righteousness. It produced this, hey, look at me. Look at how I pray. Look at how I give to the poor. All about appearances. All about striving to prove myself. All about this treadmill of going faster, faster, faster. I got to do more. I got to be more. I, 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 I. You know how Jesus ends the sermon? Two gates, two roads, two trees, two houses. Read it this week. I think we automatically just kind of think that Jesus is laying out two kinds of people, a a, a wicked person and a righteous person. But that's not what Jesus is laying out at all. Instead, he's saying there are actually two ways to be righteous. There are two ways to pray. There are two ways to give to the poor. There's two ways to seek God and live for God. One is a showy, pretentious, it's all about me kind of righteousness. It's this outside-in righteousness that is obsessed with appearances and performances. And the other is a righteousness of the heart. This inside-out righteousness. See, God doesn't look at our appearance. He looks at our heart. He looks straight into our heart. Because what he wants is our heart. And he wants a heart that is obsessed with him and obsessed with loving and serving others. In fact, that showy, pretentious, self-serving righteousness, it's nauseating to God. Do you know what I call it? Religion. And don't you think for a moment that Jesus came to establish religion. He came to destroy religion. And as good as that righteousness looks, because it looks good. It's damnable. It is. And our churches today are filled with religious people. Are you religious? Are you concerned with your appearance? Are you concerned with your spiritual image? You find yourself always trying to prove yourself to be a good spiritual person? Do you get embarrassed when you fail? Are you always trying to hide and and, and cover up your, your imperfections? Can you talk freely about your mistakes? 
Are you critical and judgmental when others fail? Right now, do you look down on anyone? Do you think you're better than anyone? If so, you're probably a religious Pharisee. Do you see what the religious person lacks? The Beatitudes. They're devoid of everything in the Beatitudes. Rather than coming to God poor, they come to God rich. God, look at me. Look at how good I am. Look at everything I've done for you. And rather than coming to God in humility, they're full of spiritual arrogance. And rather than mourning and weeping over their broken condition, I mean, when's the last time you wept over your sin? They just approach God with this smug, superficial, I'm perfectly okay. Especially when I compare myself to those people. Rather than hungering and thirsting for the only one who is righteous, they hunger to be that all-righteous, perfect one. And see, rather than offering grace to others, they're full of this critical, what's wrong with you, I'm better than you kind of attitude. You know, Jesus told a parable about this. He said there's a Pharisee, and he came to the temple to worship God. And his prayer went something like this, God, thank you that I'm so righteous, and I'm not like that person and that person and that person. And then he said, oh, but there's a tax collector. And he came to the temple. He couldn't even look. He beat his breast. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, that's righteousness. See, God's law, it first and foremost teaches us about God. The law is a window into his heart. It shows us the king of the kingdom. Because, see, listen, the reason God asks us to not commit adultery is because he would never commit adultery. He's faithful to every promise he ever made. And the reason he says tell the truth is because God would never lie. And the reason he tells us to love even our enemies and to forgive those who have hurt us is because he has. And he loves the poor, he loves the meek, he loves the merciful, he loves the persecuted because he is that God. And he became all of that in Christ. And Christ did not come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. And Jesus lived the life we were supposed to live. He's perfect as the heavenly father is perfect. And where you and I have blown it, he died the death that we deserve to die. And you know why he did this? Please know this. He absolutely loves you. He loves you. In fact, this whole sermon, the language that Jesus uses in talking about God is is not this angry taskmaster, but this loving heavenly father who not even a hair can fall from our head without the father knowing about us. A father who treasures us and values us. We're dearly loved children. We don't have to prove ourselves. 
And so let this law lead you away from all your striving and let it lead you to Christ because it's not about you. It's not about your righteous performance. It's all about him and his righteous performance. You know what? Because of his performance, we don't have to pretend. We don't have to try to be more. We can come to him poor, meek, hungry, and thirsty. And be free. Free to love the law. Free to want to live this Matthew 5 to 7. I love John Bunyan in his book, Grace Abounding. He describes this day in his life when he was finally released from doubt and despair. He says, while passing through a field, the sentence fell upon my soul. Your righteousness is in heaven. And then he writes, I thought I saw with the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand. And he said, that is my righteousness. He says, wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me that I lacked his righteousness for that was ever before him in Christ. Moreover, I saw it was not my goodness that made my righteousness better, nor my badness that made it worse, for my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself. And he said, at that moment, my chains fell off. I was set free from all my guilt, my fears, my shame, And he says, my temptations also fled away. And I also went home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. Do you know that today? He is your righteousness. Let's come to him poor. Let's come to him meek. Let's hunger and thirst for him let's leave religion behind all of it let's pray nothing in my hands I bring Lord but simply to your cross and to your Christ do I cling blessed the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Open the eyes of our heart to see your Christ and that righteousness that we hunger and thirst for in Jesus' name.